Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today, we'll be taking a look at Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. I invite everyone to open their Bibles with me and turn there so we can study together. Now, what I will do first is back up and talk about Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 as a unit, since we can think of these verses as one big paragraph that illustrates a cohesive idea. That cohesive idea is unbelief and its consequences. In Romans 1, 18 to 23, Paul tells us that God has revealed himself and the response of men is that they suppress God's truth. As a result, God expresses wrath. The question now becomes, what does man's truth suppression look like? What are the results of his truth suppression? Essentially, man's truth suppression looks like idolatry. That is, a man turns away from God and turns toward an idol. Now, when I say idol or idolatry, I don't want anyone to think that I am just referring to bowing down before the statue of a half-man, half-bird. Especially in the Old Testament, the Bible referred to literal idols that people could hold in their hands. But the spiritual principle of idolatry transcends literal idols. The object of idolatry can be anything other than God. It could be another faith, a minister, money, your children, an ideology like capitalism, or your particular church's denomination. Idolatry is an egregious sin because it is a violation of the first commandment to worship God alone. Idolatry means that in practice, a person actually believes that something other than God has more worth and is deserving of more glory than the one true God of the universe. Accordingly, in idolatry, a man takes the truth of God, exchanges it for a lie, and worships the idol instead. The subsequent results of idolatry are all negative. This is necessarily so because only God is divine. An idol is made out to be like God and worshipped as if it's God, but it is never divine. The idol is a false god who offers no salvation, no hope, and no reconciliation. The idol is not real and can therefore offer no real comfort, no real satisfaction, and no real joy. Thus, because an idolater worships a lie, they therefore live a lie. This invariably causes misery, cognizant that the real God is truth itself, and the world that he made is ordered and governed by his divine truth. Consequently, the lie always ends in condemnation, despair, unhappiness, and a perpetual feeling of emptiness. That gives you a big picture of the themes discussed in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Let us now zoom in and focus our attention on verses 21 through 23. I will read, starting from verse 18, just to keep the Apostle Paul's train of thought complete. So the text says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
Now verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 21 tells us that for the sinful person, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. What evidence do we have that sinful man knows God? The evidence is in the text. The preceding verses tell us that God is the one who made himself evident in the hearts of men. Because of this, all men know in that they have a basic intellectual awareness of the Lord. Granted, this awareness does not refer to a deep, intimate relational knowledge. The point is that something does get through to a man, but his response is to reject God nonetheless. He rejects God by not honoring Him as God or by not giving thanks. To honor God simply means to glorify Him. To honor God means a person ascribes a certain divine weight to the Lord's essence, character, and deeds. To honor God means to recognize His worth, and in response, a person worships the Lord. Hence, honoring God is directly related to the opinion a person has about Him. The right opinion reflects the truth that God is the best there is and is the ultimate reality. The right opinion is a high view of God. The response is subsequently glory and gratitude. The false opinion is a low view of God. The response is subsequently dishonor and ingratitude. Truly, God is unchanging, and His splendor does not decrease, contingent on human opinion. But a man who has his eyes opened and truly sees God for who He really is, then for him, praise, glory, and honor of the Lord flows out of his right opinion. On the one hand, God is in no way left lacking or deficient if a creature does not glorify the Creator. On the other hand, we as human beings can never add to God's glory. Rather, when a man honors God, he simply recognizes Him as deserving of all glory and praises the Lord's perfection. The person who maximally glorifies God is maximally satisfied, maximally delighted, and maximally joyful. Verse 21 says that the sinful man does not honor God as God. So what does not honoring God as God look like in reality? It looks like regarding God as if He's just like you and me. It looks like treating God as if He is earthly and temporal, not heavenly and eternal. It means disregarding the fact that God is God, that He is holy, sinless, and our spiritual Father. Take note that not honoring God as God does not have to manifest as a blatant, outright hostility toward the Lord. It could simply be a casual refusal to acknowledge God's worth. It could mean recognizing that Jesus was a great teacher, but he's certainly not God in the flesh. It could mean adopting the opinion that the Bible has some valuable moral lessons that you can loosely follow, but the book certainly does not contain the infallible, inerrant words of God. Not honoring God as God simply means that a man does not take God, his son, and his instruction in the Bible seriously. 
What I mentioned last time is that God revealed himself generally in the big Bible of creation. Yet, the grand irony is that humans are the only members of creation made in God's image, yet we are the only ones who reject God and operate in ways that God did not intend. Isaiah 43.7 says that we were made for God's glory, but when a person does not honor God as God, they reject the purpose for which they were made. The fixed laws of nature, the sun, the rain, plants, and animals all operate precisely and exactly the way God designed without variance. This cannot be said about human beings. And because we choose to live the way in which God never intended, this helps to explain why the human race has fallen and the rest of creation is not. Can you imagine what would happen if the sun began to act selfishly and wanted to keep its heat to itself? Can you imagine what would happen if the rain reasoned to itself and said, living creatures don't deserve my provision? Can you imagine what would happen if gravity said, I feel down and just don't feel like working today? If that happened, nature would fall apart because nature would now be operating contrary to the way God designed. This analogy helps to give us insight into why the world is broken as a result of man revoking God's design. But before we begin unpacking that idea, verse 21 also says that even more than not honoring God as God, man also does not give God thanks. Each and every day, every person has plenty of reasons to give God thanks. For example, they have reason to thank God for life, for oxygen, for light, and for the free offer of gospel grace. And, whether people trust in Christ or not, God demonstrates common grace to people in general. As Matthew 5.45 says, God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Yet, many people wake up every day and refuse to give God thanks. Instead, they in fact find many reasons to complain. This is not surprising because unbelief is intimately related to ingratitude. People who do not truly know God do not have a true appreciation of how good He is and what He has done for them through His Son. Of course, what Christ has done for us is everything. Only He saves us from something from which we cannot save ourselves, the wrath of God. God's grace makes natural life and spiritual life possible. In fact, the verb for give thanks in Greek is based upon two words, the prefix you, which means good, and the word charis, which means grace. Hence, to express gratitude or to give thanks means you are thankful for God's good grace. Yet, because of unbelief, many people do not see reality this way and express their faithlessness as ingratitude. This attitude is dangerous because if a man rejects the good grace of God, what remains is bad. The mere fact that we exist should persuade us to give thanks to God. Unfortunately, many use their existence not to praise God with gratitude, but to mock God with ingratitude. As Oz Guinness writes in his book, Into Minds, quote, Rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. 
The man or woman of faith is the one who gives thanks. Unbelief, on the other hand, has a short and ungrateful memory. End quote. Mr. Guinness draws an important connection in his book that an ungrateful memory is also a short one, meaning ingratitude is intimately related to forgetfulness. Once a person forgets who God is or what he has done, then he will soon begin taking God for granted. This is why, for example, when God delivered his people out of Egyptian bondage, they quickly rebelled against him in the wilderness. They rebelled because they forgot what God had just done for them. This is also why many of the rituals we participate in in the Christian life, not just to continually rehearse what God has done for us so that we don't forget. That is, while ingratitude grows from forgetfulness, gratitude grows from remembrance. This is why we remember God in prayer, in Bible study, fasting, the public preaching of the word, and baptism. This is why in Luke 22:19, Jesus told his disciples to participate in communion in remembrance of him. So Romans 1:21 tells us what truth suppressors do. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But what are the real-life results of this immoral behavior? The rest of verse 21 tells us, They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Having futile speculations simply means that the godless person will be godless in their reasoning, and godless reasoning leads to useless nonsense. It leads to useless nonsense simply because God is the author of reality, so without God, what you have left is a reality that is meaningless, valueless, and purposeless. In a godless worldview, Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa both go to the same place when they breathe their last, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Futile speculations try to avoid God in every way possible, leading to conclusions that only a depraved mind would consent to. Futile speculations suggest ideas like the world simply popped into being without cause or reason, that the diversity of life evolved by the hand of a blind, purposeless force, that we can accept Jesus as a great teacher, yet reject or minimize that the same teacher also claimed to be God. God is a God of light, and futile speculations come out of the darkness. Subsequently, when a man's mind is filled with darkness, anything that his mind produces will be variant shades of darkness. There can be no light, so he can only reshuffle falsehoods. The final clause of Romans 1.21 also describes another effect of truth suppression, that their foolish heart was darkened. A fool in the Bible never refers to a person who lacks intellectual ability. A biblical fool refers to someone who has made a moral failure and willfully sins against God's wisdom. A biblical fool can therefore have a genius-level IQ, but then use that intelligence in foolish, perverse ways. God is a God of light. In fact, Jesus said He is the light, John 8.12. If God is light, then darkness is godlessness. The point is that for the person who willfully rejects God, the result is that their heart is darkened, which corrupts their desires, their thinking, their behavior, their relationships, and their worldview. 
Here, sin becomes tolerable, and to consider a manner of life that excludes God seems like the sensible, reasonable thing to do. One of the biggest problems of having a darkened heart is that a man may actually begin to think that darkness is normal. After all, if you are blind and live in a world without light, you may be persuaded to think that darkness is normal and the light is abnormal. In a world filled with darkness, there are no bright new ideas, nor is there any illumination. Case in point. Historians like to call a period in the 18th century the Enlightenment. They call it this because in this time, reason was championed as the primary source of knowledge. Concepts like rationalism and empiricism pave the way for science to become deified and the ultimate barometer for discovering what is true. The Enlightenment crowned man king because it planted in people's minds the idea that whatever you can discern with your own senses, then that must be true. If you cannot use your own reason or sense experience, then it must be false. Hence, anything that is outside of the material world cannot be true because it cannot be touched, tested, or dissected. This philosophy left out the supernatural, the miraculous, and divine revelation. This excluded Jesus raising from the dead because I wasn't there to examine the body and stick my fingers in his side to examine the spear wound. The point is that the enlightenment was not enlightening at all. Rather, it was the great darkening. It was men claiming to have bright new ideas, but instead they were rearranging error in the dark. They became futile in their speculations. They tried to falsely contain all of reality in a rigid box of rationalism, not realizing that science itself depends on laws that God made and human reason is contingent upon the minds that God gave us. Science itself uses and examines the material world that God created and that he actively sustains. The great darkening deluded men into thinking they were unshackling the chains of religion, but instead they were enslaving themselves by rejecting the only God who could save them. In a spirit of rationalism, what men were actually doing is justifying themselves by reason and rationalizing their own sin. Darkness cannot bring a man out of darkness. Only God's illumination is capable of bringing a man out of darkness into his marvelous light. In fact, our English word science comes from the Latin scientia, which means knowledge. God is all-knowing, meaning he is the apex of all scientific thought. Hence, the most scientific statement any man can make is, God knows everything, and even on my best day, I comparatively know nothing. Therefore, I simply trust God. Now don't get me wrong, there is nothing inherently sinful about wanting to do experiments and seeking to learn more about the material world, but why would a man ever seek to understand the material world without the creator of that world? Now we move on to verse 22. That text says, Professing to be wise, they became fools. Saying you are something does not actually mean that profession has any connection to reality. Shady salesmen do this all the time. They'll say things that do not reflect reality like, this is the best ever, or this will fix your problem, guaranteed. 
Similarly, the person with the darkened heart claims to be wise, but they are only pretending. While they profess to be wise, in actuality, they are fools. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, wisdom is relational and that relationship is characterized by reverent obedience to God. The fool despises God and therefore cannot be wise because he has rejected the author of all wisdom. And the less a man fears God, the more obvious his foolishness will be regardless of what he professes. The person who professes to be wise says things like, I'm going to be objective about everything, sit down, and figure this all out. I'll weigh all the evidence and come to an unbiased, plausible conclusion. Such statements do not reflect true wisdom. They are only presupposed professions of wisdom. What animates such professions is a darkened heart. A darkened heart is only capable of producing darkened thoughts, regardless of how bright they may seem to the false professor and his audience. Our final verse today is Romans chapter 1, verse 23. That verse says, And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now before we dive into this verse, let's rehearse what we've learned up until this point. What we've discovered is that God has made himself evident to all men. And how do men respond? They suppress that truth in unrighteousness. The effects of that truth suppression are futile speculations and a darkening of the heart. Now, if those are the effects of truth suppression, what does the man do with the truth itself? Certainly, he does not simply hold it down and then leave it alone. The man is neither neutral nor indifferent in how he deals with that truth. In fact, what Romans 1.23 tells us is that man does not rid himself of God's truth because he cannot. What he does with the truth that God made evident to him is exchange it. That is, he exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for something else. The sense of the word exchanged is not that a man transforms one thing into another. Rather, the word communicates the idea of taking something away and putting something else in its place. This exchange also explains to us why people everywhere all the time tend to be religious. The universal predilection for religion is grounded in the exchange. They stop worshiping God so that they can worship something else. Even professing atheists worship something. Very few are actually godless. So verse 23 says that there is an exchange. What is exchanged? The glory of the incorruptible God. Hence, in idolatry, what a creature does is take the glory of God, which has no defects, and exchange it for something defective. Now can a creature alter the glory of God? They cannot. But what they can do is swap real substance for an image. Accordingly, verse 23 says, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, idolatry exchanges a real 1,000-pound gold bar for the mere picture of fool's gold. 
Idolatry is therefore a system of worship that settles for less than the best when Christ has already secured the best for his own. Man was made to worship. We cannot help it. It's in our spiritual DNA. Man has to worship something so he can never rid himself of this innate drive. So, if a man does not like God and does not want to worship him, what does he do? He exchanges the God he does not want for a God that he does want. Now, he worships something of his own desire. And who gets to set the terms of the worship? Man does. In whose image is the little g-god made? Man's. Everything is according to what I want. This is in essence what idolatry is. Worship according to me because now I am in the driver's seat of every aspect of the idol worshiper relationship. This is why idolatry is synonymous with self-worship. First, I get to reject God, then I get to worship what I want, when I want, how I want. Idolatry therefore satisfies all of the carnal yearnings inside of every human heart that by nature is at enmity with the Lord. Idolatry enables me to indulge myself. And to take it one step further, idolatry that exchanges the most truth about God for something else invariably looks very, very religious on the outside. As a result, in a general sense, religion does not reflect humankind at its best. It reflects humankind at its worst because in it, men exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for something neither glorious nor incorruptible. What makes idolatry so perversely attractive is that I never ever have to deal with the real God. I never have to deal with the one who is divine, holy, and eternal. Instead, I can deal with something earthly, familiar, and temporal. This is far less traumatic, but yet it also helps to explain why so many false religions are merely therapeutic. Because there is a real trauma as a result of a real separation from the real God. As a result, many people turn to religion to ease the trauma of a real spiritual separation. Now look at what the text says. What do men exchange the glory of God for? For an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I draw your attention to this to make one simple point. When thinking about idolatry, we must not stretch our minds too far. Idolatry simply means putting ultimate trust in something else other than God. Who or what holds the deed to your heart? Because if it is our own ideas or the thoughts of someone else or a philosophy, then it is idolatry. We could idolize the image of a man like Darwin We could idolize the image of a bird, like the Roman eagle. We could idolize the image of a four-footed animal, like the elephant of the Republican Party, or the golden calf. We could also idolize the crawling fly and worship Satan, the lord of the flies. In the end, idolatry simply refers to putting the creature before the creator in any sphere of life. What Romans 1.23 further tells us is that whenever a man turns farther away from worship of the one true God, that worship always progresses down toward lower and lower creatures. It moves from God to man, from man to birds, then to four-legged animals, and to crawling creatures. 
This process is de-evolutionary. It always starts with the one true God and ends in lower and lower forms of idolatry as a man turns away from the Lord. It never progresses up to God. This is an important point not to miss because in many secular circles, they teach that religion started with primitive forms of animism and then worked its way up to monotheism. The Word of God says otherwise. There has always been only one true religion and everything else has been a falling away from the God of the Bible. In fact, in his book Religion, Origins and Ideas, author Robert Brow uses anthropologic evidence to demonstrate that the evolutionary development of religion is a hoax. Just as the Bible makes plain, the original form of worship was always monotheism focused on Jehovah. Degeneration away from that results in monotheism with the worship of other gods, then polytheism, then worship of man, down to worship of animals. All the primitive religions that we see now is not where we started, but the end result of falling away. All primitive religion, therefore, is an indication of a stark deterioration from a true knowledge of the one true God. Overall, in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, we begin to see deeper into the heart of the man who rejects God. We also begin to see the effects that rejection has on a man. Let us not forget that a person's rejection of God is purposeful and willful. Subsequently, the wrath of God being revealed against humanity does not necessarily imply fire and brimstone from heaven. It implies God allowing people to indulge themselves in the idolatry that they desire. In such false systems of worship, which may come in many different flavors and varieties, people may think they are free to do as they please, yet what they will soon find out is that they are free to be miserable. Oftentimes, people turn away from God in pursuit of happiness, thinking God is holding back something from them. The reality is, it is God's sovereign grace that enables a person to experience happiness, joy, satisfaction, and delight that can be found nowhere else. God is the ultimate reality, and in Him there is maximum contentment. The lie of idolatry deludes people into thinking that they can do better than the best there is simply by doing religion on their own terms. But in the end, it is not anything created that is the ultimate reality. It is the Creator. This supreme fulfillment in God Himself is a point that I think is often overlooked in modern Christianity. Idolatry is sin, but God does not call us to flee from idolatry so we can be lacking. He opens our eyes to see that a lifeless idol is no match for a living God. And a lifeless idol cannot breathe real life into a real life human being. The sentiment of the unparalleled joy found only in God is expressed by St. Augustine in his classic work Confessions. In this short excerpt, he writes about his conversion where God took him out of the deficiency of idolatry and sin and into the superabundance of sovereign grace. St. Augustine writes, quote, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of these fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. 
You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, thought not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. End quote. For many, turning away from God is what they think they want, but where do they end up? They end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Instead of looking up and worshiping God, they look down and worship four-footed creatures. The result is that they become what they worship. Instead of becoming more Christ-like, they become more beastly and animalistic. Humans were never designed to be like animals. We were made in the image of God. Animals that behave like animals are doing precisely and exactly what they are supposed to do. But when men act like beasts, we are far worse than animals because we are image bearers of God acting like four-footed creatures. Men are never satisfied with beastly things. Hence, as a result of idolatry, a person is not content but empty. They are not free but in bondage. This is why man needs a savior to deliver him from bondage. And this is why Paul's argument that ends in chapter 3 points forward to the one and only Jesus Christ. This will conclude today's lesson. Next time we will pick up in Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.